no more defenses. Our army is wiped out. Artillery, air force, everything wiped out. This may be the last broadcast. We'll stay here to the end. Welcome to Media and the End of the World. The boys are back in town. I am joined once again by Ralph Beliveau, who's been traveling worldwide. You look you look tan, you look happy. I am. I'm taller. I have bigger pectoral muscles. My hair is blonder. All you, of what I wished. But you were actually, now you did some traveling too. I did. And you were in much sunnier, much warmer places than I was. I was in England. Um, which was cold and rainy for part of it, a little bit of sunshine, but you were in the hot beating Italian sun. It wasn't too bad. I was there, uh, the very last week of May and then early June. So, um, the highs were sort of low eighties, which, um, was bearable. I mean, it was like hot from like three to 4 PM and that was it, which was gorgeous. So like the rest of the day, uh-huh. uh, the, the nights are just wonderful there. Yeah, it's it's kind of amazing because they also have uh, a culture. It's one of those things that um, I think that once you travel, you sort of start seeing how you can schedule dinner differently. <laughs> like, yeah, you don't have to eat at five thirty yeah. and be done by six fifteen, and then ignore each other again for the rest of the <laughs> evening. Right? You can actually sit there and have like a lengthy, yeah. interesting conversation. And what's interesting about Italy, or at least I know this. Maybe this is not just Italy. Maybe this is this is broader. But at least my experience was that whether it's a restaurant or a coffee shop. You know, it, like if you order a coffee, like maybe you pay then, but just like pay before you leave. It almost feels rude to ask someone, you know, will you pay for your meal? Like here, you'll very often get the, well, are you interested in dessert? Which is kind of like a cue for you should be done eating. Or And they're armed. You, they're yeah. armed with a little leather thing. <laughs> right, right. right. <laughs> do you need a takeout box? Like all these little uh, cues that to, to get you to yeah. leave so they can turn the table over. In Italy, it's like... Stay as long as you want, you know, like you, you come here and you keep ordering until you, you are done and sit here as long as you'd like, Mm -hmm. because we're not interested, not terribly interested in just putting someone else at your table. So that was really exciting. Well, the other thing, yeah, the other thing that's, that's exciting and it's becoming, I think a little bit less the case in larger cities like London, um, because unfortunately larger chains are taking over but the idea that a lot of these places are like really small operations yeah. run by you know families or a small business interest or something like that yeah there was a point where i think we started to make the connection so we were staying in a town called Arezzo and it was like we know that family owns that place and i'm pretty sure this family kind of owns the block at least like maybe like the sibling owns the next door spot and maybe the aunt owns owns the spot around the corner like i think they've got the whole block on lockdown with different (laughs) uh different variances of italian food which is well then they can get mad at you and yell at you and say hey you don't like it here go next door (laughs) i don't care (laughs) and well in the uk the interesting thing is the um and I don't really – I need to do a little research on this. The pub franchises, mm-hmm. that there are these companies that essentially drop upon your institution the local pub. 
And uh, great fun is made of this in the movie World's End. I don't know hmm. if you ever saw World's End. It was the third part of the Cornetto trilogy, which started with Shaun of the Dead. Oh, okay. Um, and continued with Hot Fuzz. Yeah. And then was completed with End of the World. And there's actually a great pub in Camden uh, called World's End. Um but uh, anyway, in the in the in the film, they do they go into they're they're going to do this tour of pubs and they walk into one, have a drink, and then they're going to go to the next one that's on this list of pubs you have to hit, and the next one has exactly all the same, <laughs> the same the exact same handwriting on chalkboards, the exact same menus, yeah, everything's it's sort of like carbon copies. And there's a couple of companies that do that that you start seeing their stuff over and over again. It doesn't necessarily mean it's a terrible pub in my experience, but uh, but it's just interesting as that's becoming more commercial. Yeah. But, uh, but like really just doesn't happen as much as it could in the U.S. otherwise. Well, you so. were taking some students for a British media studies tour. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so well? Yeah, it went well. It was uh, it was an interesting time um, because where here things are seem kind of like somebody took the risk board and threw it up in the air and all the pieces <laughs> are still scattering and falling. They have that same sense there um, because of Brexit. Um, which was, you know, the vote to withdraw from the European Union and uh, had an interesting perspective on it um, recently from uh, a television program I watched that I'll talk about in a little bit. But but I think the fallout's still happening, partly because the campaign to support Brexit functioned on such high levels of misinformation, like this guarantee that there was all this money that was going to flood back into the National Health Service. And one of the pieces of news that came out while I was over there was that the National Health Service is about to ask for a lot more money. So it's like the opposite of what was supposed to happen because of what's happening with the European Union and the rates for pharmaceutical supplies and things like that. Uh, The other thing that happened while I was there was the royal wedding. Wait, you were there. I was there. I, no, I was not at the royal wedding. Why not? I was. Well, you know, the ticket never arrived, and <laughs> I didn't bring the right outfit. And I, I thought George Clooney could cover for me, just just <laughs> fine, um, because he's got he's got more of that kind of like he could take the you know, the American side. Uh, but it was you know again once the, the, this interesting bizarre anachronism of of um, you know of royalty and royalty doing what royalty does, which is, you know, get paid a lot of attention to and spend an enormous amount of money. And everybody seems to think it's kind of charming and nice and stuff like that. And then everybody gets back to the business of being rapacious capitalists, you know, first chance they got. So, man, I I would love to do like a a Forrest Gump uh, rendition of, you know, you know, like how like he just kind of pops up in the middle of like footage of, <laughs> yes. of like the, the most, you know, insane American moments throughout the movie. Uh-huh. Like I would, I would love to just see you in the background at the royal wedding, just kind of standing there like, like you accidentally stumbled upon it somehow right. or, or you're sure. taking the students through a tour of <laughs> just the like palace as by. the wedding is taking place. Yeah. <laughs> Got your little headsets on. Right, right. And getting the look from that guy. You remember the guy who was checking every Everybody's invitation. Well, I don't know if you watched any of the wedding, but there was a guy checking people's invitations as they came in and walking up to him and saying, um, these students, we're just going to cross through here. Is that okay? Do you, we'll be quiet. <laughs> is this is is this where the museum tour starts yeah, right yeah. here? This is all public walks, right? I mean, this is a public threat. Anyway. We bought our tickets like well in advance for this and <laughs> well, these people, students paid good money. That was interesting. People kept asking. Um, so – they kept on asking, so are you on holiday or are you here for the wedding? 
yeah. which automatically put those in two separate categories. And right. of course, being a jerk, my answer was the third category, which is no, I'm actually working. Yeah. You know, um, and then they would look at me like really weird, like. Um, don't do that, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you should be on holiday or here for the wedding or something like that. But, uh, but yeah, it was interesting. And then when it went away, after the wedding was over, it was like, you know, I mean, it never happened. It was gone. Yeah. You know, it was completely out. And, you know, then then all of the other rest of the things that were going on in the world came flooding back in. So, but, um, but I was thinking about it recently. I was going to mention this because I do want to say something about Anthony Bourdain, um, uh, who um, took his own life. Uh, while he was in the middle of actually shooting his next um, season of, uh, of of the program that he does, that's really an astounding program called Parts Unknown. I think that's the one he's still doing now. And uh, my daughter and I watched an episode on London. And when Anthony Bourdain was in London, he was it was right after Brexit went through. And I don't know if you recall, but there was this like look on people's faces, like we did what? You know, mm-hmm. that kind of like the shock of the vote that had gone through, and people really didn't know what it meant. Um, it seemed almost like a, a bizarrely impulsive thing that happened. Um, anyway, it's uh, but 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 it was also charming. There there uh, there. Anthony Bourdain had his you know usual discussions about how the culture works there, um, and it's interesting how it's kind of a show about food that doesn't necessarily talk about food all the time. Mm-hmm. Right, it's got a lot of other things going on in it, and. Um, the first place that he goes in there is a restaurant called St. John, and it's a restaurant I haven't been to yet, but I've been wanting to go to for years, and it's a cuisine. <laughs> it's delightful. If you're eating, you may not. Um, it, it's called Nose to Tail. And so what you're liable to get there is any part of the animal, wow. basically. Not 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 a. I mean, they usually do have a vegetarian option because you do that. Do you, so you pick but, the animal, or do you have no, options? No, no. They, you, they, you, well, they usually have like a, a few things on the menu. Okay. Um, when when Bourdain was there, the 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 two things they presented. One was uh, bone marrow, which so you got um, you know cow bones that were eight inches tall, big fat ones that had. Uh, that had been broiled and, and roasted so you could pick the marrow out and spread it on a piece of bread or eat it otherwise. Um, and then kidneys, hmm. uh, beef kidneys. And um, so I still want to go there because I think that if there is some place that I go, and this guy has, the the, the chef who's there um, is somebody Anthony Bourdain has been singing the praises of for quite a few years now. And so I'm, I'm, I think in Anthony Bourdain's honor, I'm going to go there next year, hopefully, if if I have the opportunity to go back to London. I think it's a perfect place to take students to. I mean, my students were complaining about the lack of air conditioning in places, and I'm sure <laughs> like giving them uh, beef uh, uh, kidneys beef would, kidneys, would, would yeah. go over really well. It, it would. It would. There are... It's interesting, having traveled with students quite a bit, there's definitely a couple of profiles that come up. There are students who go who say, I only eat chicken and potatoes. And so if they go somewhere that doesn't have chicken and potatoes, they don't eat or they wait until they can go somewhere else later. Um, and then there's the people who are who have figured out about traveling that just don't ask, right? right. I mean, you know, order whatever they suggest. And I, I often do that, you know, if it's a place where I don't know much about the menu is to say, well, what do you eat here? Yeah. And uh, they make recommendations and tell you, we went to a, a Chinese place in London where he said, and you have to pick out the peppers because they'll just kill you. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and it was, it was, it was a really good dish, but then, you know, trusting what they say, but not necessarily going into the level of detail of, okay, what exactly is in this? Because right. that kind of takes the, takes the fun out a little bit. 
Yeah. Ask afterwards, though. Yeah. <laughs> and then you can find out maybe some surprising things. I don't know if I would like kidneys or not. I, you know, having grown up in a family that uh, served liver frequently, hmm. I, I'm sure yours didn't because I think that was a generational thing. Yeah. Because it was just kind of a cheap option. I don't but, think they had uh, liver TV dinners. No. <laughs> <laughs> but you can, I, it's still, uh, it's still cheap. It's still commonly available. Um, and actually some people make a big deal out of it at nice restaurants. But yeah, travel and food, travel and food are, are kind of an amazing thing. And I'm very, very sad about Anthony Bourdain. Uh, it was just a, to me, it was a very kind of upsetting thing. And I would strongly recommend if you haven't read anything by him, he is an, an amazing writer. Um, he's just, he makes the whole world that he lives inside of and the world that you share with him uh, an, an amazingly exciting thing. Mm-hmm. So he's yeah. just, and he's just a really good writer. So. Right, and that happens the same week that uh, Kate Spade takes her her life as well, and mm-hmm. you know, kind of creates a national conversation around it. And and I I want to say that the um, a new biography on Robin Williams has recently came out by uh, an author named Dave Itzkoff, who oh maybe he writes for the Times, maybe he writes for someone else too. But he's kind of a pop culture guy, and I've I've I followed him for a while and read a couple of his books. But anyways, I bring that up because um, you know part of the story that came out about Kate Spade was how interested she was um, in the Robin Williams story, sort of after that. So it's a tough, tough time to to have to experience that, um, you know, as a as a nation. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it, it's. Um, I think it. it I, I think it's an important thing to have conversations about. There are certainly groups. You know, there's a lot of controversy about uh, Thirteen Reasons Why, which I haven't watched yet, and I'm not sure if I'm up to watching it yet. Um, you know, the 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 central plot of which is a, a, high, a young girl who's taken her life and kind of telling people why it happened, and uh, I'm just not really. Yeah. Uh, ready for as as a parent. <laughs> I don't. Yeah, I don't. I don't think I can either. And it, it is interesting to think about. You know, we that is the infatuation, at least as we as we watch and read media following these events. Is that's the question everyone wants to know. And arguably, there's never a there's never a black and white answer to something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but we try to we try we we try to solve the mystery so quickly. That I think sometimes we we move past the morning, you know, mm-hmm. in efforts to seek truth and and why something will happen. Yeah, and expecting that there's going to be some kind of an explanation right. that would make sense outside, and, and I think frequently there isn't, and it's just not. Uh, you know, it's like people who are self-destructive who aren't necessarily intending, you know, at that moment, but end up accomplishing the same thing. Um, but, yeah, it would be kind of nice if our, you know, again, the sort of in general, if media were actually capable of uh, talking about it in more depth. And, you know, one of the other things is that there's definitely been this identified crisis in mental health support services. Um, some of which is being affected by, you know, money in the public sector anyway. Are people actually able to get the mental health support that they need? And, um, of course, we're um, all hoping that that gets to be the case and that we're able to have a more sophisticated conversation about what kind of resources people need and uh, taking advantage of them, never feeling like, you know, you shouldn't um, take advantage of them because you're supposed to be stronger or something like that, um, but taking advantage of them. So anyway, um, well, really quickly, mm-hmm. I think it's worth just 
while we're on that topic to sort of do the the PSA, you know, that if you are someone, if you if you or someone you know is struggling uh, with thoughts of suicide, um, you know, you can reach out to the the National Suicide Prevention Line at one eight hundred two seven three talk. So that is eight two five five to translate the talk into into numbers as well. So there's a a quick PSA, and then uh, and then we can move on to that was what, whatever, whatever thank you for, like to. Yeah, thank you for for adding that because yeah, I think that's important uh, information to have. So where are we else? Where else are we now that we're back? Um, season two. This yeah, this is season two. Season two. Epi- episode two. Episode two. Actually. Season two. Yeah. Um, and uh, there's there's a couple other pieces of media that I'm hoping we're we're able to talk about a little bit, and a couple things that have been happening in the media world. Um, one of which, uh, do do you want to go with that? Or? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So I, I'm happy to start this off. This is actually an article that I was reading this this morning that came out um, June 23rd from the New York Times, um, titled "Thermostats, Locks, and Lights: Digital Tools of Domestic Abuse." Really a fascinating story that looks at how smart home technology is being leveraged for abuse, um, almost. Uh, entirely, uh, you know, with females being the victims of that. But I, I first wanted just to get your opinion and just ask you about smart home technology. Do you have an Alexa in your house or do you have, you know, the Google, <laughs> whatever the Google is, you know, or a, uh, an Apple? I think it's called the Google sit down and shut up <laughs> or something like that. Okay, Google. <laughs> Start media and the end of the world. Yes. I uh, Actually, yeah. I mean, the, the idea of having the Google device and the Alexa device and watching them figure each other out is <laughs> be kind of entertaining. We actually, we got the a royal old, wedding we've we, all been waiting right, for. Exactly, yeah. Call back. We have them now. They're <laughs> ours. Um, yeah, they're, they're, we do have an Alexa. Okay. Um, and... Uh, um, the Alexa is not nearly as adorable as our dog, of course, but uh, but it's actually kind of fun, and uh, I still haven't uh, spent as much time as I'd like to sort of playing around with it. But I am a little suspicious of um, both the the idea of the Internet of Things, right? The idea that all of these devices are now going to become part of the 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 um, you know that whole conglomeration. And uh, also suspicious of the way that companies are leveraging fear to try to sell people this stuff to sure. to make you feel like you know you're just not safe, so you need to you know buy the home security system. Then where the you can watch it on your phone and say to the guy, "Hey, get out of my backyard!" Yeah. And then the siren goes off, yeah. and, and all of that. Yeah. So here's uh, sort of the the lead of this article. It says one woman had turned on her air conditioner, but said it then switched off without her touching it. Another said the code numbers of the digital lock at her front door changed every day and she could not figure out why. Still, another told an abuse helpline that she kept hearing the doorbell ring, but no one was there. Um, and these, you often hear uh, a story that I've seen circulated a lot is the hacker who gets into the baby monitor, you know, and, and talks creepily into the baby. But this is this is not like hackers, you know, trying to get in. This is usually someone, a partner within the relationship, um, uh, almost predominantly Dominantly, the male who is, according to this story, kind of the one who sets up the technology probably doesn't give any passwords over to their spouse or partner and then continues to leverage the the knowledge of how these tools work, whether it's uh, the, the, the front door or the AC 
um, uh, or the the in-home security system to sort of spy and and abuse uh, their partner as well. And this this to me is is crazy stuff. I don't think I don't think it's not crazy from a wow I'm really surprised this is happening, but crazy from a this stuff never even crossed my mind that this was um, possible or someone would be doing this. Um, you know I'm I'm kind of creeped out. I, I'm probably a, a minority here, but I don't really like the Alexas or, or Google devices just from the fact that I don't like the idea of something that's constantly a listening device in my house anyways. And so, but I don't think that's the thing that really concerns most people. But this this really starts to concern me when I hear about the ways in which um, people are are abusing it within within their own uh, within their own family household. Yeah, there's and there's certainly something that has to do with new definitions of appropriateness and privacy and things like that too. That more actually kind of leads yeah. into that with other family relationships. What should and shouldn't you have access to, or what becomes a new way to think about uh, you know violations of your privacy? Um, you know, is it? Uh, I've watched an. I could because of my endless consumption of British mystery television programs. <laughs> um, watched one recently called Safe. Uh, which was about horrible things happening in a gated community. You know, the same kind of beautiful place, horrible things kind of thing. And one of the things the father had done was put a tracker on his daughter's phone, and then his daughter disappeared. And um, so... Anyway, so but there's a certain kind of an idea of, you know, what's the the violation of trust that's involved in that? and uh, yeah, no, I mean, I think it's kind of something where I'm, I'm, I'm definitely more paranoid than um, uh, of, of further in, incursions into the space. And I probably should be more paranoid of Alexa. Yeah. Um, but she plays me nice music too. Yeah. <laughs> so. how, do, how do you think, at what point does there need to be government regulation on these type of products in the same way that we regulate airwaves for radio and for television, you know, these, these in-home devices that sort of, um, also transmit large parts, parts of data. Mm-hmm. At what point, you know, does there need to be some kind of larger regulation or should there be, you know, can you make an argument? That- it's kind of a different, I mean, in one way it's really closer to like slander and libel laws than, than broadcast yeah. regulation because broadcast regulation was built around this metaphor about limited resources. Sure. And, you know, that's of course, the, the, that whole metaphor is not something people think about commonly. Um, great chunks of the spectrum have been sold off for people to use for, you know, um, uh, for the phone system. Um, and by and large, people aren't really engaged as much with, you know, broadcast per se, which is now multiplexed and digitized. So you can cram an awful lot of multiplex signals into a, a single FM broadcast band. Um, so, but, but I mean, what's interesting about that is that we really haven't reinvented the metaphor because even in what you're saying, it's sort of like what's, what should be, what should somebody assume are their rights in terms of self-determination in relationships and in relationship to technology or parent-child? How much autonomy is appropriate for your child to have in terms of the technologies that they use? Because I think I've, I don't know if I've mentioned this on this program before. I feel like I have, but I would have been so bad had, having had this much freedom in the communication world when I was a little kid. <laughs> it would have, it just would have been really not a good thing. 
Um, so, and in that way, it makes me it makes me kind of admire the the young people because they have some interesting value differences, who have managed to survive despite the onslaught of you know having access to everything all the time. Yeah, I think I I look back and think I almost start to feel overwhelmed of what it must be like to be a teenager these days in the amount of places in which you can be privately bullied, you know, whereas Mm -hmm. even myself growing up in the nineties, um, and did receive, uh, peer, uh, bullying via email and via like instant messenger. Um, that was really sort of where it was contained as far as it, as it related to, uh, the digital space, but there are so many apps and so many places where you, this can happen and it can disappear. Um, and no one could, you know, potentially ever know about it. I don't know. It just, it just really overwhelms me and scares me as a, as a father of, of two young daughters. Yeah. And, um, and maybe that's just, maybe that's just cause I'm a dad now and I'm, I'm a wimp about, uh, mostly everything. Well, that's no. I mean, I think being concerned about those kind of technological influences and then what you're what what get what you get access to. Um, I've been watching. Uh, if you caught any of this about the uh, woman who was basically, I think, pretending to call the police on a girl who was trying to sell bottles of water on a hot day in San yeah. Francisco. Yeah. And uh, I guess the. The uh, so I mean it turned into a racial incident because it was a young African American girl who was really trying to raise money so that she could go um, to Disney World right. and uh, uh, a woman didn't like her yelling to sell her stuff and then the woman came down and was either calling the police or pretending to call the police um, but and then there was a, a, a video shot of her making this phone call which got on the internet and became you know essentially a, uh, a racially charged thing b- because of recent incidents like the the barbecue that somebody called sure. the police on somebody barbecuing in a public park and it was a, a white woman calling on an African American so there's a lot of you know racial components to this that need to be taken into account so the woman has been appearing on television actually posing as the victim in this whole situation because of the backlash that she's received, both in terms of her business and then the sort of onslaught of, of um, incivility that comes through through the internet and through social media. And, and you know, I, mean, I think there is going to have to be an interesting assessment of the consequences of that kind of thing. So what do you do? Do you not pay attention to it? Um, do you, uh, do you take, you know, do, do you complain about how you've been treated, um, and how do you? How can a culture rediscover what it, how it wants to behave in terms of civility, um, given on the one hand racism and on the other hand anonymous death threats? Um, how do you find a place where people can find a way of interacting with each other that acknowledges that you know when we talk about these things often with our families, you know, there's privilege drives a lot of that. Sure. We know that we're in privileged situations. Certainly, I mean, we have all this technology we can use, and um, and never taking that privilege for granted is very important. So I was recently listening to the Ezra Klein show. Uh, which is a Vox Media podcast, and it was an interview with Ellen Powell, who formerly was the the CEO for Reddit. And she walked through how Reddit, and she was in charge as Reddit was sort of to, to change their line of thinking around where they were. She felt like it, the the culture of the company was very much feeling like they were driven by the idea of freedom of speech. And no matter what, how, how horrific it got, that was the thing that they wanted to promote was that this was a place where, um, that, that 
that right was promoted. And since over time, you know, she was one of the, the first to really shut down some of the subreddits as it related to uh, like revenge porn and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. um, uh, child things that, you know, and probably not worth mentioning. Um, but that was, you know, she really started to, to champion those as well. And I think that's the conversation that we're seeing at large, probably the biggest one that, that the, uh, the, uh, Silicon Valley is really thinking about and wrestling with right now is to what what degree do we balance the freedom of speech with, you know, protecting uh, a civility? That's yeah, that's that's definitely complicated. Um, but no, I know Reddit's kind of taken off. I think they've moved up to being the number three most used website. I really, think, at this point, yeah, they they uh, eclipsed. I can't remember who it was that they had eclipsed, but they're they've become enormously significant. And I I, I find that that's a good place to go when you have time. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> to kind of disappear, you know, sort of like into the groups, and in some ways, it, it's very reminiscent of early internet activity, where you could just find that niche group that you really right. want to communicate. Yeah, with. I think it's, that's what's interesting about Reddit for me is that the you know it's I don't really understand the idea of Reddit as an aggregate, but it's probably because I only interact with such a small sliver of it, and then mm-hmm. like the. The, probably the five or six different subreddits that I actually follow. Yeah, it's such an interesting set of tools, actually, and, and you know the rating system that's built into it so that it keeps certain comments in a particular discussion near the top and it can get into really like micro-niche kind of interests, which I think is really interesting, too. Um, but, you know, so I think I, I certainly don't have a comprehensive idea of like Reddit as a thing. It's almost really more a software tool, right? Right. Yeah. 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 Well, uh, where should we move next? Well, a um, couple possibilities. One, let me mention this one. Let me talk about horror movies. Um, and let me preface that by saying <laughs> that we are a day late for the recording. So yesterday when we were going to record and then some stuff happened in your important life that made it not work, uh, I was wearing a, a T-shirt that I don't have on right now that was a Mary Krampus T-shirt. Ah. Uh, Krampus is uh, for, for people who aren't aware because I'm learning. Are you familiar with Krampus? No. You don't know what Krampus is. Oh, awesome. Is this shocking to this, you? This, no, no, not at all. <laughs> I just never know whether some people are like, oh, Krampus, all right. Yes, of course. You know, Because there's been like three or four low-budget horror films made over the past few years. So Kramp- And there was an episode of Supernatural that was vaguely Krampus thing. So Krampus is a more or less Eastern European mythical creature that uh, basically shows up right after Santa Claus. So the, the way that this works is that when you're good, which I know you have been, you've been good, right? Uh, yes. Okay. Yes. <laughs> so when you're good, then on, on Christmas Eve, Santa shows up and uh, gives you the good stuff. But if you've been bad, and I know you haven't been bad, because no, that would be, no. but if you've been bad and you're a little kid, then Krampus comes along and basically grabs you and eats you. So there. Wow. So that's the, the yin and yang of, of the holiday season. In any event, I was thinking, as I was thinking that we're getting started on season two, that we are six months away from Christmas. And that that means that if you have been bad, you turn have time to turn now. your life around. This is great. This is, so, so this is something that you can kind of like, you know, work yourself up to. And I mention all of this because I recently saw um, a film. There's a, a new horror film out. 
and it's called Hereditary. And uh, uh, there's a, there, there's very interesting discussion going on about it because there are some people who um, it's an A24 film. A24 is a company that's been doing a lot of kind of edgy horror stuff that actually gets theatrical screenings, which is kind of nice. Um, and this particular film is about tragedy that's happening in, in a family, uh, really kind of I, I don't want to spoil anything by saying anything, but fairly advanced level tragedy that follows the death of the grandmother, which is what starts the whole thing going. And uh, it it has um, uh, um, it has this amazing creepiness to it. It's not grotesque, and, and there's a couple of episodes of fairly significant violence in it. But outside of that, it's just this amazing, tight, small atmosphere. Most of the film takes place in a house that a family lives in, and it's a beautiful house. It's actually a, a, a very gorgeous, wood-filled, stained-glassed gorgeous house and it's the family trying to figure itself out and so in that sense it sort of becomes as a lot of horror films are this kind of displaced way of thinking about what's the nature of family and things like that uh, but then it kind of goes into a completely different thing by the end and that thing that it goes to by the end has really split its audience but I would really strongly recommend if you haven't seen it don't read anything about it yeah. don't listen to anything specifically about it go see it and then decide if it makes you happy or sad and then engage with the conversation there's a, a British film critic uh, radio personality named Mark Kermode um, who's kind of a hero of mine because he's first of all a big fan of the band Comps on Angels which is one of my favorite bands that nobody's ever heard of but he's also a really big horror film fan and he ended up really liking the first third of Hereditary and really disliking the rest of it. And so the community is really kind of split like that. But it's really, there's there's exciting new stuff in it for horror fans. I just wanted to mention that it's out there for can, it. Can I ask you if you fall on the, does it make you happy or sad? Made me really happy. Oh, okay. But I am, um, but I, but I, I, you know, honest truth is that I'll watch just about anything that, <laughs> that, class, that is classified as horror. And I'm, I'm very forgiving of like lots of technical errors sure. of people who have interesting ideas that are either funny or out there or challenging or whatever. This film is not. I mean, it's technically very sophisticated. It's beautifully shot. And Toni Collette is in it, and her performance is absolutely jaw-dropping. Hmm. And she won't get credit for it because it's a horror film, and in this culture, horror films are still pretty disreputable. So, um, and it isn't, I wouldn't call it an art horror film because I don't even know what that is. That's kind of a I appreciate weird that you're subclassification. Not, you're not a horror snob. Or you, you're no. not a snobby horror snob at all. You, <laughs> you appreciate all... No, and I well right, and because I think it's also very personal. I mean, what what bothers you or me or somebody else is going to be pretty much a product of our own, you know, what we've done in our heads to unsettle ourselves. Had a great conversation. So we have an assignment in one of our classes where we have students write part of a haunted house story. That's hmm. this sprawling historical thing to give students a chance to write some fiction because that's part of our program here at the University of Oklahoma. And uh, I remember having a conversation with a student where she was like, I just, I don't, you know, she was like, I don't think I can do this. And why? Well, I don't like horror and I don't really do horror and I have no idea what to do. So I said, okay. Well, just think about this. What scares you? And she you know, walked away and she sat down and the conversation went on. And a couple minutes later, she just burst out, rats. Rats really scare me. I'm going to write about rats. 
So so it's a very personal kind of experiential kind of thing. I've had rats as pets. I think rats are really cool and smart. And I've watched television with rats, you know. <laughs> so I would not be scared of them. But, right. but she was. So anyway, yeah. So I think it's a very personal thing. And so I think that makes it hard, very hard to be snobby about it. But, you know, that's just me. And there's people who just don't deal with horror. They're just, it's not their thing. And I talk about it too much. <laughs> I don't. Yeah, I, I, I can't say that horror is something that I get excited to go really see. But... I think that speaks less about how I feel about horror and just more about what I'm looking for in that type of entertainment. Mm -hmm. Um, Just being in a part of life where any time away where I'm going to see an adult movie, you know, having, having little kids is very precious time. And so we're only going to go watch something, you know, a handful of times a year and then what we can watch even after they go to bed is where it's more manageable to watch something that's a television episode or um, some kind of uh, uh, you know show on Netflix just because about an hour is, is you know uh, the the absolute maximum of life I have left in me after my kids have gone to bed. <laughs> so it's just really hard to get into something. So the idea of watching something that's going to um, you know, get my heart rate up and get my, my blood pumping. It's uh-huh. not the kind of thing that I'm going to, I'm going to do to re- relax myself. And I, I, the same thing. I stopped watching sports late at night. I used to watch, um, you know, more basketball, which tends to take place at, you know, nine thirty tip offs on the West coast. I just can't do that anymore. Um, because, uh, because it, it just, it gets me, you know, my, my uh, my spike and I I can't go to sleep after that uh-huh. so I I I can only really um, uh, digest this very specific type of content you know so mm-hmm. for us uh, my wife is is rewatching The Office for like the 18th time <laughs> because it kind of fits that space yeah. of like uh, enjoyable worth watching somewhat mindless, not necessarily you have to follow the narrative incredibly closely to, to get something out of it. And you see the same thing with like friends or, or Seinfeld or other shows that just kind of sit in the background of time. That's, that's more of what we are, that we, we will consume a lot more of that. Than you know, the you know there is the argument also that, um, um, electronic images coming out of televisions, computers, iPads are actually uh, igniting parts of your brain that make it very hard for you yes. to unwind. Yes. And that actually reading print on a page or some, and they haven't really differentiated between that and Kindles, which are right. supposed to be more paper-like than, right. you know, that that actually has strong physiological effects. Yeah, and, it's true. And, and I, I, yeah. I have, because... Well, my wife can fall asleep to watching TV. Um, I I can't. You know, I, I have moved to, I, and I 95% of the time fall asleep before she does. 95% is probably even generous. 98% of the time <laughs> I fall asleep before she does. And I have moved to like wearing more of like a, you know, a mask at night to just totally block everything out as uh-huh. I as I sort of doze off because otherwise even, you know, the, even the flashing TV that I know is still on kind of bothers me visually. Were you ever a, a listener? Uh, at bedtime, listening to things? Oh, that's a good question. Maybe there might have been some point. I feel like there was some point in high school where I was like listening to music as I went to sleep. Mm-hmm. But, but that's really the only period of my life that I can I can really recall doing that too mm-hmm. much. Yeah, I do know people who actually fall asleep to podcasts, which I think yeah. is kind of an interesting thing. Which, again, that, that's something for me. Like I feel like I have to be focusing on what I'm listening yeah. to too much that... You know, I, I can't do that, but, mm-hmm. 
but um but yeah i, I know other people can i just i want to hear it yeah so. any other podcasts that you've been listening to that have caught your attention lately um yeah there is one that i've been listening to uh pretty frequently called uh um oh make it weird with pete holmes familiar mm-hmm. with pete holmes he's I a am, yeah. he's a comedian he's got a show on hbo called falling is that right no that's not right it's not falling it's something like that yeah i think he's he's like uh crashing be. it's called crashing, crashing right yeah. i was gonna say i was gonna say failing <laughs> the idea is he's like a right. struggling stand-up comic right yeah. which is um it, it's it's fairly cl- that that show is fairly close to his real life story so his story you know his story is that he um got married uh, fairly young, got divorced around 28, decided to move into New York City and really become this struggling comedian out of it, trying to find himself, um, find himself, you know, through professionally, but also spiritually as well. And he has this podcast called You Make It Weird, which is these fantastic uh conversations that he has with with other comedians and actors and uh, authors in which he talks about sort of the profession which I always love hearing people talk about particularly people that are within art you know sort of what makes them tick and what makes them go but he also spends a lot of time talking about sort of how you know what what is God to you or the you know not necessarily the the man itself but this higher idea you know what do you what do you necessarily believe in um, you know, and, and if you don't believe anything, how did, how did that come to be? And just having like these very open, honest conversations is because that's something that he has, um, uh, struggled with throughout his life as well as just try to come up with this, with this concept of, of, of what the, you know, not necessarily the, the guy in the sky concept of God, but just this idea, um, you know, of something bigger than ourselves really is. And it just really fascinating conversation. So that's, that's what I've been kind of working my way through, which mm-hmm. I kind of just, I, you know, I, I stumble upon <laughs> podcasts, particularly interviews where at some point I go, I really just want to, I'd be curious to hear a long form interview with X and then I will pump, you know, put their name into the search bar of podcasts and see what comes mm-hmm. up. And, um, uh, my wife and I had just gone and seen Ben Folds play with the Oklahoma city Philharmonic and I was like, man, I've never really heard an interview with Ben Folds. I just love to hear that. Uh, when and was this? This was, oh, I don't know, uh, April. Oh, okay. Yeah. He's, he's, he occasionally does these concerts with, um, orchestras. Yeah. I saw him do that like three or four years ago. Yeah. When he was, yeah. Uh, he does it. He just kind of does it randomly. And it's really more than anything. He just wants to get the word out of like, you have this incredible group of musicians that Mm -hmm. you know for the most part are probably not being supported at the level they could be supported publicly and so he comes and does these pop songs with renditions of them and it was it was fantastic but i was like you know i've never really heard him talk and he just seems like a pretty enlightened dude i'd 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 be curious to hear his story and so i that's how i stumbled upon the the pete holmes Mm -hmm. podcast you know because i feel like every every quasi celebrity out there has at least one interview somewhere on the Apple Podcast Store, <laughs> and that's what I'm usually looking for. So. Yeah, yeah. There's, yeah, I haven't uh, sort of next on my list of things to to get through because they were talking about on an NPR was the car karaoke with Paul McCartney. Oh yeah, that is supposed to be fantastic. I haven't yeah, seen it yet. I haven't it's supposed either. to be fantastic. Yeah. So that's on on uh, on my list of stuff to do, and I will certainly add this. Um, 
this you make it weird you made it weird because that sounds like it's definitely something oh it's good yeah yeah and um and i also have a relative who's selling me on the new season of uh, revisionist history oh really um, which is supposed to be she she said it was really kind of depressing actually yeah (laughs) which he can sometimes the harsh realities that he discovers in his writings and stuff like that is just you know um, the idea of the calm uh, South Korean co-pilot trying to tell the pilot he's about to crash the plane into a mountain and be polite about it. Yeah. You know, it's just like these really kind of uh, uh, creepy things that are at the periphery of what he's when doing. When I heard that Malcolm Gladwell was going to have a podcast, you know, my first thought was, yeah, well, what he does, can it really translate into a podcast? But then, of course, I started listening to it. I'm like, of course, have you ever heard this guy speak? I mean, he has got yeah. one of the best just sort of speaker voices. Yeah, uh, and first... he writes to such a, you know, such a, a general audience that mm-hmm. really he can engage anybody into yeah. the conversation. And there, I, I only listened to a couple when it first came out, but I, I need to. It sounds like I need to revisit revisions. Yeah. The, the first time I heard him talk, he was being interviewed um, in conjunction with Douglas Rushkoff about the whole practice of cool hunting because he'd done an article, I think, for the New Yorker mm. on cool hunters, um, which were you know people who were going into the into the environment and trying to find the people who were at the cutting edge to create things that could be turned into manufactured goods and marketed to death and killed. So the, the cool hunting was also the cool killing, basically. Wow. And that's what he was describing. And so there's a little little bit of an interview with him in um, in, in this uh, Rushkoff do- uh, documentary um, called The Merchants of Cool uh, and very compelling. And I think it was really before all the kind of amazing books. But he is an amazing writer. Yeah. He's a very, very good writer. All right. Uh, we got time for probably one more thing. If there's something that you want to jump into before we uh, sign off, I don't know. I, I think it. Uh, I think it will be very important for uh, people to keep an eye on what happens as a result of the. Uh, and I'll just mention this in passing: the uh, AT Time Warner merger, because there is uh, certainly a lot of arguments that people will make that this was justified. There's uh, arguments that people will make that it's not, and that it's really moving moving us closer to the Mahidia Bohemoth. I'm sorry. Let me try that again. Media behemoth. There, ah. I said it right that time. Bohe- bohemoth sounds like a. I thought you said like mojito or something. Like, is that like a a new mo- uh, mojito that the, I the, the media leviathan? There, that's an easier <laughs> word to say. So, um, but but you know, it's going to be something that's very interesting to watch because you have to watch kind of two things. Because if PR would be too negatively affected by raising prices, then. It'll just be drop services. And the argument that they aren't direct competitors is a little weird. And that's you hmm. know, one of the arguments that uh, um, was made by Stephen Moore in the, in the New York Times um, in the middle of June was that, you know, because they're not direct competitors, most of the resistance to this was kind of silly. But I think that what you're seeing is the the vertical monopoly. What yeah. you're seeing is people who control distribution and that technology are wanting to get much more involved in the content. And so AT&T now owns this whole, you know, this whole uh, shopping mall of, of content production. And so I think it's really important to not let that go away and keep an eye on what that means in terms of 
you know, what uh, what media you have access to, whether this is something that's going to actually increase the diversity of voices that have access to the media sphere or decrease it. That's the that jury's still out on that. Yeah. So. Someday I will work for AT&T University and you'll work for Disney <laughs> University. And it's just the, that's the way it will be. It'll right. Be two yeah. options. Right. And we'll like be poisoning each other like slowly <laughs> without even really acknowledging it just to, for world dominance. That All right. Good, a good way to end uh, another episode. Thank you guys for joining us. Uh, I was make a quick plug. If you missed episode one, I would recommend going back and checking that out. I had to uh, got the pleasure to have a really special interview uh, with Keegan Longwheeler, who is a colleague of mine here at the University of Oklahoma. A really touching, crazy story to kind of have him go through. I really appreciate him being uh, available to do that on his third day back at work. Yeah, I'm very I'm very jealous because I wasn't able to be part of that episode because it's really good. Oh, it's well, a really good episode. Thank you. So. I appreciate that. So go back and listen to that. But until next time, thank you for joining us at Media and the End of the World. <laughs> <laughs>